puedo dormir y tomo más pastillas para sobrevivir. What up, English 3322? ¿Cómo van? ¿Cómo están? What's up? How you guys doing? The dulcet sounds you're hearing right now are from a band called Los Bunkers from Chile. The song is Ahora que no estás. Los Bunkers was an alternative rock band from Concepcion, Chile, formed in 1999 by brothers Álvaro and Gonzalo López, Mauricio Basalto, and brothers Francisco and Mauricio Duran. They are well known in the country for their contemporary sounds of rock based on sounds of the 1960s from bands like The Beatles and also including sounds from their folk roots. The band name is essentially a play on words that at the simplest level recalls Chilean rock groups of the 1960s, like Los Jokers and Los Sunnies. The use of the letter B in K was also considered to be desirable by the band as it aligned themselves with some of their biggest music idols such as the Beatles and the Kinks. Finally, the word bunkers is also symbolic of the refuge that the band and music had become against all that surrounded them. What might surround a Chilean band in 1999 in the fallout of a uh, Pinochet regime that ended in 1990 and a military junta that had not yet quite dissipated? If you're not familiar with the military dictatorship of Chile, it was an authoritarian military regime that ruled Chile for 17 years between September 11th, 1973 and March 11th, 1990. The dictatorship was established after the democratically elected socialist governor or governments rather of Salvador Allende was overthrown in a coup d'etat on 11th September 1973. During this time, the country was ruled by military junta headed by General Augusto Pinochet. The military used the alleged breakdown of democracy and the economic crisis that took place during Allende's presidency to justify its seizure of power. The dictatorship presented its mission as a, quote, national reconstruction. The coup was a result of multiple forces, including pressure from conservative and women's groups, certain political parties, union strikes, and other domestic unrest, as well as international factors. According to an article written by lifelong CIA operative Jack Devine, Although it was widely reported that the CIA was directly involved in orchestrating and carrying out the coup, subsequently released sources suggest a much reduced role of the U.S. government. The regime was characterized by the systematic suppression of political parties and the persecution of dissidents to an extent unprecedented in the history of Chile. Overall, the regime left over 3,000 dead or missing, tortured tens of thousands of prisoners, and drove an estimated 200,000 Chileans into exile. The dictatorship's effects on Chilean political and economic life continued to be felt. Two years after its ascension, radical neoliberal economic reforms were implemented, in sharp contrast to Allende's leftist policies, advised by a team of free market economists educated in U.S. universities known as the Chicago Boys. Later, in 1980, the regime replaced the Chilean Constitution of 1925 with a new constitution. This established a series of provisions that would eventually lead to the 1988 Chilean National Plebiscite on October 5th of that year. In that referendum, the Chilean people denied Pinochet a new mandate, opening the way for the reestablishment of democracy in 1990. Consequently, democratic presidential elections were held the following year. 
The military dictatorship ended in 1990 with the election of Christian Democrat candidate Patricio Ailwin. However, the military remained out of civilian control for several years after the junta had lost power. So, then why is it, you might ask, that I'm invoking a Chilean rock band from the 90s and the specter of Pinochet's regime in the context of Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem? Why am I invoking the history of another country on another continent, South America, with a contemporary literature produced by a Native American writer in North America? Why am I drawing a through line between the colonial and interventionist historical echoes of Latin America and the way the colonized body moves throughout contemporary North America? Because the parallels are undeniably there. Especially when we talk about the disappeared body, the impossible shedding of one's history and the through line between American intervention in Latin America and American colonialism in North America that, one might argue, might include indigenous North America as an extension of its primarily indigenous brothers and sisters throughout the hemisphere. Not necessarily by Spanish colonialism, though that too, but also by American colonialism and interventionist policies. To put it blunt, the connective tissue between many Latin Americans and many indigenous people is a shared trauma of American interventionism at best, genocide at worst, and a conflicted history that resonates in the present. So far, we've only talked about the American Southwest as a cultural extension of Latin America, as explored in Marcelo Hernández Castillo's Children of the Land and the Chicanex idea of Aztlán. But we have yet to contextualize the through line of indigeneity and the indigenous experience in the Western Hemisphere as another connective tissue that further reinforces this idea. I want to start off today by reading That Which Cannot Be Stilled from Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem, uh, we're on page 42. And then we're going to have a chat with Dr. Nancy Quintanilla from Cal Poly Pomona, uh, expert in um, Central American literature, uh, but also an, an expert in sort of indigeneity and post-colonial lit. We'll talk to her in just a second. But first, let's read That Which Cannot Be Stilled. Ash can make you clean, as alkaline as it is a grief. My internet research calls it a disinfectant. But life is faster, research, and unavoidable. Dirty Indian. A phrase blown like magnetite dust against the small bones in my ear many times and dark. Sometimes I believe them. I'd looked around. My reservation around our yard, our house. Dirty, I'd say. Like I was a doctor with a diagnosis. Except I was the condition. All my life, I've been working to get clean. To be clean is to be good in America. To be clean is the grind. Except my desert is made of sand, my skin, the color of sand. It gets everywhere. America is the condition of the blood and of the rivers, of what we can spill and what we can spill it from. A dream, they call it. What is American? Back home, we believe in dreams. Heed what happens in fours as lucky. Four iterations of anything in a dream. A shade, an ancestor, a gesture, a cloud. Four fat quails making campanile of the mesquite tree. Four hands 
shuttling nighthawks along a loom of electrical wires. I've had a recurring dream my entire life. It is night. I'm in the dune field on the edge of the res, tending each blue-gold mound smooth, undisturbed, each quartzed particle in its place, but a baby is crying in the ocean wooden crib, or someone is fighting someone else, a quavering radio, a distempered dog. I sorrow for silence, motion the dunes soft with my hands, and please, which is no invocation for peace, I step lightly, I am holding my breath, maintaining to keep it all from shifting, then it happens, through what was perfect, a carboned rubble sifts up, tangled rebar, torn fences, scrambled, sheet metal oxidized and spiking, breaking the sand like it's my own skin. I feel the junk of it all in my body, a rising wild, I can't stop the happening, the rust scene is in me, like how a deep wound heals, glimmered open, there's no pattern of four in this dream, just land and it's moving, the dunes and how they are taken, reorganized and reckoned, grains loosened, Archimedes's myriad, myriads sifting in a copperhead, or a coppered stream rather, saltation they call it, from the Latin saltare, meaning to jump or leap. Isn't that what we do on the page? John Ashbery died today, and tomorrow is my birthday. Maybe death is a way to clean the self of the body, to finally celebrate it. A celebration should leave a mess. Oh, lit pyre of my anxiety, the ash silver its streaks across heavy my chest and brow. The doctor asked, do you feel a sense of doom? Instead of replying, I wrote, what do you call a group of worms, if not a worry, if not a wonder? That was before I knew a dune has a slip face and a slack. I've read more Ashbury today than I read when he lived. It's true that life can be anything, but certain things definitely aren't. Like the red sugar horses and their satellite eyes, sphering and sick beneath the decks of your body, their ship. We know how to speak to our conquerors, don't we? What if you whisper into the long, long ear of one, say, beloved occupier, beloved hoof, and stiff green gallop, then tell them a story about the horse's latitudes, a place so still not even the wind will go there, that if they can't get it together, won't quit making a mess of you, those animals won't stop carousing your blood to hippodrome, we might take them there, to some vast middle, lead them over the decks, and far from the desert, give them up to the sea, watch the slow green blue dunes lift open and disrupt everything which cannot be stilled. It's an incredible poem. I know that I say that about a lot of Natalie Diaz's poetry, but um, this one is uh, interesting. That which cannot be stilled. I want to give a little bit of context to this poem because I think it comes from an interesting place. Um, was published originally in The New Yorker, um, May 23rd, 2018. Um, and it was it comes from a correspondence between Natalie Diaz and Ada Limon um, 
I'll read this from the New Yorker page. It says, From January through September of 2017, the poets Natalie Diaz and Ada Limon conducted an inspired and collaborative correspondence. The resulting poem letters reveal, as most missives do, their writers' lives, but also a time and a place. One in which the immigration officers of ICE are as present figures as the poems or poets, partners, and lovers that ultimately expose and explore the American character. Throughout the exchange, much of which occurred while the writers separately traveled the country, a rich physical and emotional landscape emerges. As the poets navigate their own experiences, they ask questions about heritage, place, nature, the body, language, and dislocation, challenging themselves, one another, and their readers to develop a more nuanced understanding of what home is, and of what it could be. These epistles chart a world in the throes of change. They chart a deepening friendship to the kinship of words uh, and of being women, of being poets and people of color in the early 21st century. I think that description of it is actually really interesting, especially invoking ICE and, and immigration. Uh, I think of those along the lines of disappeared people. Um, I also think of those along the lines of the way in which uh, this contemporary resurgence of, of white supremacist ideology and racism uh, in the contemporary um, is sort of resonating or has historical uh, echoes that Natalie Diaz is exploring within this poem. We get in the third stanza, dirty Indian, a phrase blown like magnetite dust against the small bones of my ear many times in dark. You think of the sort of like the eardrum, like a small bone, but also sort of like this like child or something that has been told this. You see throughout the poem uh, a lot of that sort of mineral or rock imagery um, that Diaz brings up throughout this collection. We have magnetite dust, um, which uh, is sort of like, you know, magnetite is something that's sort of uh, magnetic. Um, it's really interesting. I read this factoid about it that um, the human body, body naturally produces magnetite. And there's some studies that actually show that you can have orientation northeast, southwest, sort of organically by the way in which your body um is in touch with that magnetite or the way it processes that it, it makes any sense. And so uh, it does make sense in this, in this, I think about that when it's talking about sort of orientation or the way in which, um, you know, if the body knows what true North is, um, does the body also sort of on an ideological level, um, does it intuit what true North would be in the colonizer's gaze? Right. Um, and so it makes sense in the context of this, like dirty Indian or this like um, schematic of being that has been presented to uh you know, the citizen of, you know, America, um, of which the colonized body, um, uh, can subscribe to or not. Dirty Indian, a phrase like, blown like magnetite dust against the small bones in my ear many times in dark. Sometimes I believed them. I'd look around my reservation, around our yard, our house, dirty, I'd say. Again, we get this internalized white gaze Right, she can see it through the colonizer's eyes. She's looking at one side of a brown body, but can actually see with the eyes of the colonizer. And she she invokes this again in the next stanza, like I was a doctor with a diagnosis, except I was the condition. Right, for me that's such a sad line. Like you can't help being what you're being. And she sees it as like a condition, right? Something to be cured, something to supersede. She invokes this line, or she's invoking the idea of it toward the end of the poem. We know how to speak to our conquerors, don't we? What if you whisper into the long ear of one, say, beloved occupier, 
beloved hoof and stiff green gallop. Then tell them the story about the horse latitudes. I have to get a good definition of the horse latitudes, but if you guys don't know what the horse latitudes are, it's where the north and south hemispheres uh, meet and the trade winds and the sea is very calm and the wind is very calm. And it's almost like um, this space that is uh, devoid of any kind of influence. There are no waves. There are no dunes. She brings up that um, imagery quite a bit. Um, but going back to this sort of like internalized white gaze, you know, she says to get clean, to be good is to, to clean is to be good in America. To be clean is the grind, right? She's almost invoking this like Puritanism or this Puritan work ethic, uh, this sort of colonial era sort of ideology, but also this um, sort of part and parcel of the, you know, uh, hegemonic white gaze. America is the condition of the blood and of the rivers, of what we can spill and who can we can spill it from, a dream they call it, what is American, right? It's interesting because I I can't help but feel it right now. She's like kind of like she it, throughout the rest of the poem, um, she's really invoking this idea of dreaming, and this idea of like um, finding patterns or. Um, exploring one's identity through the dreamscape. Uh, but she's talking about the American dream almost as if it's like this nightmare, right? Um, and she talks about it in the context of who blood we can spill and who we can spill it from. Uh, and in the context of rivers, which um, up to this point in the book have been sort of uh, symbols of life, symbols of, uh, within her poetry, um, of this sort of... Uh, you know, sometimes uh, this sort of like sexual imagery. Um, but she says, of what we can spill and who we can spill it from, a dream they call it. What is American? And it's an interesting sort of challenge, right? Uh, what is American anyway? Who gets to decide what that is and what it's not, right? She's obviously talking about colonialism here, right? Um, but colonialism in the vein of that Puritanism, which sort of preambles it, um, we get that sort of rock imagery again at the top of page 43. Um, I'll read just the stanza before it, and then I'll go ahead and get to that stanza. I've had a recurring dream my entire life. It is night. I'm in the dune field on the edge of the res, tending each blue-gold mound smooth, undisturbed, each quartzed particle in its place. But a baby is crying in the green wooden crib, or something is fighting someone else. I don't know why, but I get this image of, like, dark and light. You think she's in the sort of um, the edge of this dune. Maybe it's dark, and then it's quartz, which is, I don't know. In, in previous poems, we've seen that in reference to, like, you know, moonlight or something like that. And she says, each quartz particle in its place. Like, imagine sort of like this spray of light or something coming down. But a baby is crying in the green wooden crib, or something. someone is fighting someone else. A quavering radio, a distempered dog. I sorrow for silence, motion the dunes, soft with my hands, and please, which is no invocation for peace. I step lightly, I am holding my breath, maintaining to keep it all from shifting. Then it happens, right? And this is sort of a, not the vault of the poem, but there's a shift, there's an inflection point. Through what was perfect, a carbon rubble sifts up again, that sort of like uh, mineral, um, so organic imagery right there. Um, a carbon rubble lifts up, and then we get this image of like this border fence. 
tangled rebar, torn fences, scrambled sheet metal oxidized and spiking, breaking the sand like it's my own skin. Right. Think of that image. Breaking the sand like it's my own skin. It's the second time she brings up sand in relation to sort of like the color of one's skin. But you think this is like border fence going up. It's sort of cleaving the body into. It's a violent image, but it's also um, sort of harkens back to some of her uh, earlier uh, works. I'm thinking uh, along the lines of um, flipping through here. Woo. Which one was it? American arithmetic, right? Where she talks about being part of a person or, you know, sort of like blood quantum as sort of a relic of colonialism or something. But that, that idea getting invoked here, tangled, rebar, torn fences, scrambled, sheet metal oxidized and spiking, break the sand like it's my own skin. I feel the junk of it all in my body, arising wild. I can't stop the happening. The rusting is in me, right? This man-made thing, blood quantum invisible walls, border fences, arbitrary lines, you know, relics of colonialism, um, relics of the disappeared body. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, you are, or you have as much value as the state tells you that you do have. And the white gaze is always sort of omnipresent. We go to the top of page 44. Saltation, they call it from Latin, saltare, meaning to jump or leap. Isn't that what we do on the page? John Ashbery died today, and tomorrow is my birthday. Maybe death is a way to clean the self of the body, to finally celebrate it. A celebration should have, um, should leave a mess. Right? John Ashbery, for those of you who don't know, um, one of the wider poets. <laughs> and it's interesting how she goes from sort of uh, moving from the colonial sort of the white gaze and the way it's, uh, you know, the violence of it uh, as it's internalized with the way in which it, the violence of it, the way it's internalized in literature, right? And she goes to this line, we know how to speak to our conquerors, don't we? She's like, I can write well for the white gaze, but, you know, I'm writing against it right now. O lit pyre of my anxiety, the ash silvered streaks heavy across my chest and brow. The doctor asks, do you feel a sense of doom? You know, that hearkening back to that sort of um, magnetite image, that magnetite dust. You think of this gray slate ash. We talked about this sort of magnetic force, the way in which it can sort of like orient, orient, orient itself, uh, orient the body. Um, what is true north? What is not true north? What does America say is true north? And that dissonance creates a kind of doom. The doctor asked, do you feel a sense of doom? Instead of replying, I wrote, what do you call a group of worms, if not a worry, if not a wonder, right? And she draws those two things together, the worry and the wonder. The worry of that dissonance that is within the body, and then the wonder of where it comes from. That was before I knew a dune has a slip face and a slack. I've read more Ashbury today than I read when he lived. It's true that life can be anything, but certain things definitely aren't it. Like the red sugar horses and their satellite eyes, sphering and sick beneath the decks of your body, their ship. Right, whoa. That image, that colonial image. Your body, their ship. Think on that, right? What is sort of the inferred images there? We think of instantly of like 
the slave trade, we think instantly of sort of like um, conquest. We know how to speak to our conquerors, don't we? What if you whisper into the long ear of one, say, Beloved occupier, beloved hoof, and stiff green gallop, then tell them a story about the horse latitudes, a place so still not even the wind will go there. What she's doing is she's writing a poem invoking things that the white gaze might like. But it's a subversive image, right? She's connecting the hemispheres here, kind of in the way we were talking about it earlier. But she's talking about it in the context of, let me just look up real quick. Um, I, I briefly preambled what uh, what the definition of uh, horse latitudes are, but let me see if I can get an actual like scientific definition. Horse latitudes. A belt of calm air and sea occurring in both the northern and southern hemispheres between the trade winds and the westerlies. Yeah. Late 18th century origin, uncertain perhaps from the fact that becalmed sailing ships on long journeys were said to have thrown horses overboard overboard to conserve water for the crew. What? <laughs> I had never heard that before. Uh, this is according to the uh, Ocean Service, the NOAA. The horse latitudes are regions located about 30 degrees north and south of the equator. These latitudes are characterized by calm winds and a little precipitation. The horse latitudes are located about 30 degrees north and south of the equator. So it's an interesting image, right? Almost like we were talking about how she like uses those, um, uses that to sort of uh, invoke, I don't know, this colonization of the entire hemisphere. A place so still not even the wind will go there that if they can't get it together, won't, Quit making a mess of you. Those animals won't stop carouseling your blood to Hippodrome. Do you guys know what a Hippodrome is? A Hippodrome are those sort of um, Greek-era racing like uh, stadiums where they would um, essentially race horses like chariots and stuff around in a circle. Um, if you go to Mexico City in the neighborhood of um, Condesa, I think the, the street is called Hippodromo. Uh, we might take them there to some vast middle, lead them over the decks... And far from the desert, give them up to sea, watch the slow green-blue dunes lift open and disrupt everything which cannot be stilled. Right. So she's taken this sort of uh, revolutionary stance just as the horses are thrown over. That's kind of an interesting factoid. I'm glad I googled that. The fact that becalming sea ships on long journeys were said to have thrown horses overboard, overboard to conserve water for the crew. It's like, you know, to subvert the colonial, the white gaze, to subvert uh, the, the, the trauma or to subvert the sort of like, a, um, I don't know, the hegemony of the white gaze or white attitudes or, you know, white supremacist ideology, right? Fuck it, throw them overboard to get calm waters, right? Something like that. If they're not careful, we're going to do it. Um, but that dissonance, exploring the dissonance, knowing... Um, what is true north and what is actually north what they tell you is north and what you know in your heart is north yeah cool dig it The enduring images for me in this poem are the dunes in the sand and the dunes in the sea. Land meets earth, northern hemisphere meets southern hemisphere, the horse latitudes. 
this point zero stasis of magnetism is a geographic zone of calm, actual and ideological, but also an aperture of understanding. Seeing oneself as a product of historical circumstances, one can also find cultural legibility with other colonized people who have lived the fallout of similar cultural and historical circumstances. The echoes of American colonialism, economic and interventionist throughout the hemisphere have created a kind of language of trauma. And I don't think Diaz invokes this image of the horse latitudes by accident. I think it's a way of putting the Americas in conversation with each other, and to that end, putting this contemporary moment in context of its historical trajectory. We got here from somewhere. Uh, we didn't just happen. This wasn't an accident. And maybe the horrors that we're living are an extension of American horrors that have uh, preambled it, not only on this continent, but on others. Think on that. Dr. Nancy Quintanilla is an assistant professor of English and modern languages at Cal Poly Pomona. She received her PhD in English from Cornell University where she specialized in US Latino Latina literature with an interdisciplinary focus on diaspora, gender, and Central American studies. She's been my really good friend for many years, uh, an incredible scholar which I admire uh, a lot, uh, has a focus on um, uh, Central American literature and is just a fountain of knowledge, a really great um, resource, and I think it's a privilege for us to talk to her. This is my conversation with Dr. Nancy Quintanilla. Hello? Nancy, what up? Hey, Daniel. Hey, Dr. Quintanilla, what's up? Have you been, man? Good, good. It's it's a uh, quite a time right now, so just just hanging out at home, social distancing myself. How are you? I'm good, doing the same. Are you hanging in there? I am. Yeah, yeah. Keeping myself busy with teaching and you know just Netflix and all that good stuff. What are you watching? What am I watching? I just finished The Witcher. The Witcher? Yeah. Like Bruja? Yeah, like Bruja. Shit, is it but scary? It's like, uh, no, not really. It was a little confusing. People were celebrating it and saying it was going to be like better than Game of Thrones before I started watching it, but I don't know. I'm still a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah, man. Same. Except the the Bran and the Broken. Man. It's like, I'm talking about? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Game of Thrones fan for season seven. Oh, sorry, one to seven. Get about eight. <laughs> Is it Brand the Broken or Brandon? Brand. Brand, yeah. Like Raisin Brand. Anyways, so uh, we are reading uh, Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem. Um, I kind of want to talk to you about, you know, because I'm not a post-colonial scholar, um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about post-colonialism and your thoughts on it. You're obviously an expert in it, and uh, it, it sort of uh, is uh, inflects quite a bit of your work. What is po post-colonialism? What does it mean? Yeah, to you, or I guess, what does it mean in the significance of your work? Um, or yeah, so I'm going to start with this sort of very formal definition of you know of postcolonial theory, um, which I teach often, um, and that's you know at its, at its sort of very fundamental, basic definition. It's just like, sorry, excuse me a second. You got your dog out there? <laughs> no, it's my dad. It's my dad. He's mowing a lot. Oh, tell him I say what's up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's just 
uh, for me, it's the post-colonial theory is like the study of um, the after effects of European colonization around the globe. And this, and when I say after effects, I mean the social, economic, and historical impacts that colonization had on specific spaces around the world. So from Latin America to Africa to Southeast Asia. Yeah. Would you consider the United States a post-colonial state? No, actually, no. Uh, this is a debate that a lot of scholars, well, it's not much of a debate, but this is something that a lot of scholars uh, talk about, and that's that, you know, if, if the United States was actually a post-colonial state, um, we would be privileging and talking about indigeneity um, a lot more um, explicitly, And it, but it still isn't. It is a country run by Eurocentric ideas and European Western beliefs um, so it's very much still a colonial state a settler colonial state yeah we were talking about this a little bit in the context of like whether america is an extension of latin america or not by virtue of you know we think of like americans citizenry and i think this is something natalie diaz talks about quite a bit you know what does it mean to be sort of like a citizen and and, and or sort of a colonized people um and i think writ large throughout this sort of americas we can think about you know, through these interventionist policies and through the lens of, yeah. you know, looking at the way in which the, the sort of the tendrils and, and the neoliberal economic models of the United States have inflected the entire Western Hemisphere, um, whether there is an argument to be made on the basis of sort of like the indigenous experience, which are, you know, the people native to this hemisphere, um, whether yeah. it is an extension of Latin America or not. What do you think? You know, that's interesting. Um, I'm teaching right now a hemispheric American like course. Um, and, and I think, you know, if, if you go back to um, westward expansion when, you know, in 1848 when the U.S. and Mexico signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, um, that's sort of the beginning of, of this uh, erasure of the ways in which um, sort of the hemisphere is united through its indigenous history. Well, no, we, we actually trace that back to the colonization of the Americas, but mm -hmm. in the U.S., right, in the Southwest in particular, uh -huh. um, here we have kind of the U.S. taking over uh, the West in order to um, continue creating space for slavery, right? They wanted more space to expand slavery. Um, so we see here sort of this conflation of, like, black and brown oppression um, that is erasing uh the southwest and it's ties to latin america and it's ties to uh, a continuous sort of indigenous culture that is linked to um latin america so we've got then like the imposition of the border and then the definition of the u.s as the nation state that divorces itself from the rest of the hemisphere mm -hmm. and then of course we also have um you could sort of touch on this a little bit but like you know genocide and the way in which right. they've been direct genocides or almost indirect through sort of like the propping up of dictators that we have, they have been quote unquote against Truman, our bastards, right? He was talking about Trujillo, but you know, we could sort of project that onto any number of bastards who we sort of like propped up uh, in the 20th century. Um, I know your work sort of uh, interrogates Central America quite a bit. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about indigeneity in Central America um, and I guess American imperialism in some to some extent. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, you know, coming back to what I was just saying about westward expansion, was what that did was facilitate uh, U.S. imperial rule over Latin America and especially Central America. So, so when the U.S. Um, takes over the West, 
Uh, we have sort of, uh, it's, it's, we begin the early 19th century with Manifest Destiny, right? This is like, I don't know, high school history here, mm-hmm. um, where the U.S. thinks it's, it's, it's sort of, it's um, destiny to be better than and to rule over uh, inferior countries. Um, and we have the birth of the Banana Republic at the same time, right? So we've got this giant monopoly here, the United Fruit Company, um, that is facilitating the exportation, not just of goods, but also of people and ideas, right? Manifest Destiny is exported with um, this, this birth of the United Fruit Company and also people, a lot of, and this is also kind of tying it back to U.S. history during Reconstruction era, um, we have a lot of free black people and we know about their journey up north to cities like Chicago but they were also um, required or rather asked to go to Latin America and do work in banana plantations so we also have the exportation of of racist laws and racist ideologies in Latin America and all of this is being sort of added on to the already colonial legacy of, of that certain Latin American countries have so like in Guatemala for example um, we already have we have um, the in this hierarchy we already have indigenous people at the bottom and now um, we are bringing in West in black West Indian people uh, U.S. free uh, black people and we are the U.S. is establishing Jim Crow laws in order to navigate how to work the fields um, mm-hmm. and so all of this is creating this like hyper racist society that is continuing to disenfranchise and to oppress indigenous people and this is just the 19th the beginning of the 19th century and then sorry the uh, end of the 19th century and then the 20th century that's where uh you know we have the the rise of the wars and and the brutal genocide of mayan people in guatemala yeah i mean it's really interesting because we, we 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 talk about that sort of on a um in the way in which that inflects or sort of uh, impacts um, the subaltern, but even and this is something that I really appreciate about Natalie Diaz's um, both post-colonial love poem um, in this poem, that which cannot be stilled. She's even talking about the way in which uh, even I get I won't call it the non-subaltern, but the less subaltern if that makes any sense. Even when you're um, the person of color or the indigenous person maintains a sort of uh, semblance of privilege, the mind is still colonized in this way right and she has this line in here where she says um where is it we know how to speak to our conquerors don't we and for me that was like a really powerful and she talks about this in the context of john ashbury but in the context too of even even we even think of our intellectual class or our literary class um we don't like to think of ourselves as colonized people but the way in which we move throughout the world the way in which we think we have that sort of like um we can see out of our own eyes. I think, if I'm not wrong, it's that double consciousness, that, that concept. We can see out of our own eyes, but we can also see how the oppressor sees us. And it's something that never quite goes away, which sort of gels with your idea of, like, America not being quite a post-colonial state yet. Um, did you read the poem for today? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? That's, that's, it's great that you mentioned that, sort of, like, a colonized mind um, and, and, and our relationship, you know, it not just sort of we're, we're not just talking about a particular ethnic group but like it's everybody is walking around and thinking through these colonial ideologies as much as we try to to be better and to liberate ourselves mm-hmm. from those ideas and this is you know um one of my favorite quotes that actually um 
don't don't have pulled up just yet, so I'm going to paraphrase it badly. But there's <laughs> an indigenous scholar in Bolivia, her name's Sylvia Cusicanchi, um, and she has this great quote where she says that like the way to decolonize or like where decolonization has to start is with the mestizo uh, himself, herself, um, because hmm. we are continuously fighting inter- this internal colonization. It, we are like this uh, fragmentation of indigenous and Spanish heritage and um, if we are going to talk about like decolonizing this world it begins especially in Latin America it begins with the mestizo um, oh, so man. yeah I, lo- I love that you just said that and that sort of ties back into that line that you just read from Diaz's poem yeah she's got this great poem that we just read for last time called American Arithmetic which it talks about that the idea that you know the, the oppressors within us but it, the, the way in which I mean even within this own poem um I'm talking about the one that we read for today. Um, she has this line, right? Third stanza. Well, let me just read the first three stanzas. Yeah. Ash can make you clean as alkaline as it is a grief. My internet research calls it a disinfectant, but life is faster research and unavoidable. Dirty Indian. A phrase blown like magnetite dust against the small bones in my ear many times and dark. Sometimes I believe them. I'd look around my reservation around our yard our house dirty i'd say and it's for me it's like it's like a heartbreaking thing of like this little girl like looking around outside and seeing it through the white gaze so seeing it the way a white person would see it you know right yeah yeah totally and 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 right the emphasis on right so we have this comparison to um dust and like the natural world but then the, the understanding that dirty has a different value and a different meaning, right? When they call you dirty Indian. Yeah. No, it's terrible. It, it reminds me so much of like the echoes of like, um, even sort of the propaganda that Pinochet used to round up certain intellectuals. Not necessarily that it was along indigenous lines, but it was always the lines of like cleanliness or godliness or, or like sort of mm-hmm. fealty. Um, but then also sort of like in within... Um, Latin America too, like within El Salvador, I'm thinking like that war, um, the Salvadoran Civil War. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you could. No, I think. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I was gonna say that um, you know, you know, to tie this in again to to what we were just saying about a colonized mind. Um, it's funny how a phrase like "dirty Indian" is so colloquial, so present. Um, in our daily lives that um, we take for granted sort of its horrible um, racist logic, right? Yeah. So, for example, um, my family, when um, a child uh, um, is being, like, um, stubborn and doesn't want to do something, is not listening, is throwing a tantrum, they always go, oh, it's India or it's India, yeah. right? And that and that's something that they, they're not it, it, they don't understand that come like they're not saying it viciously you know it's not something that they're um, because it's it's a, it's probably their own child that they're referring to as an Indian um, but it's something that they've normalized as just kind of a phrase that you like just identifying stubborn traits in a child but again it's rooted in a very racist uh, logic and they can't they don't under they don't quite see they can't divorce that they can't sort of see the racism embedded in it because it's just something that's been so normalized um throughout you know generations yeah what are what are some last thoughts on this poem um as we sort of wind down here 
Um, you know, if you kind of scroll down or, or move down to uh, like a couple lines after what you read, um, she writes, America's the condition of the blood and the rivers of what we can spill and who we can spill it from. A dream they call it, what is American? Um, and I think that's a very powerful statement on mm. not just sort of what America is all about, but what it's always been. Um, and and then the, the, the end with a dream they call it, what is American? And the fact that it is uh, something that spills blood. And, and I'm going to tie this to our present day issues um, with the coronavirus and the current president and his, his administration yeah. claiming that uh, we should be going back to work because um, this will be good for the economy. And basically what he's saying is some people need to die for the good of the economy. And that is the, the very sort of ideological root of, of capitalism in the Western Hemisphere is that people need to die in order to, for companies to prosper, from the United Fruit Company to slavery wow. to any, any major monopoly of Amer- American imperialism, that is what has always been required. Sea it's always been required sea, of marginalized people, right? Of black and brown bodies. But now, why people, the reason people are shocked is because privileged people are being asked to potentially give up their lives for the good of capitalism. And that's, I mean, I think that's that's embedded in these last lines that she's uh, that she's writing here. We can spill what we can spill and who we can spill it from. Shit! Oh my god. What do you think the end game of this is? I mean, not to get away from the poem too much, but like, what is the end game of all of this? We obviously haven't learned. Like, we never learn. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's disheartening, and I just, it's just. What do you? I don't know. I don't. I think it's yeah, anybody's you know, guess, man. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. What you know, ultimately, what the ruling class wants. Yeah. Um. You know, do do they want to be? I don't know the sole inheritors of a really bad world that you know is is that they've destroyed. I don't I don't know as as much as I just see it as a, a kind of self preservation at this moment. You know, ca- this is sort of capitalism grasping at the last straws and saying I'm not going down. Um, wow. You know, now everybody privileged and non privileged needs to make some sacrifices. Yeah. At, at the time of recording this, um, so today we are uh, March 25th, 2020, they passed a $2 trillion stimulus bill last night, uh, which if yeah. that the entire GDP of Germany is $3 trillion, and we are yeah. pumping $2 trillion into the economy. Mexico's GDP is about like one point, I, don't quote me on this, like one point something trillion. I should probably look this up. I'm in front of a computer, but I'm not because I'm talking to you, Nancy. I'm present. I'm practicing radical presenceness. Or whatever radical presentness, yeah. presence. Anyway, um, but almost twice the GDP of like Mexico's entire economy. That's fucking bananas. That is like silly money. Yeah. And I do worry about yeah. this. Like, not that there are direct parallels to like something like Weimar in Germany or something like that. But we do know that like American currency is like a fiat currency, which means that we just print it. But I'm like, that just doesn't yeah. seem like a good strategy here. <laughs> just to make up money and then pump it into the economy. Don't call me. I'm not that I'm like a conservative. Not that I'm like a, not for, you know, I, I, I'm definitely sort of like, you know, democratic socialist, I believe. But it seems to me that it's like it's not to the ends of democratic socialism. It's to the ends of like salvaging banks and airlines and shit like that. And and yeah. you can really see it like I think about like like old school, like proto-colonialism. You think of like, 
in the stock market, which rose around the same time, the East Indian Company, which actually had like a fucking standing army. I read this the other day that the history of the uh, uh, Serengapatam battle, which was like an entire battalion of company soldiers from the East Indian Company who went and um, basically put down a rebellion um, in uh, in India, and they got these medals for it. Uh, like as capitalism goes it was sort of like in lockstep with colonialism yeah 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 exactly exactly right um yeah the, the trillions of dollars to me is crazy i remember you know months ago when aoc um was i don't know on some talk show and they were and people were like um you know universal health care in the united states over a period of 10 years would cost 1.5 trillion dollars and then, and then, you know, people are shocked and like, where are you going to get that? I'm like, we just spent $2 trillion in a day, you know? We just, yeah. we just signed this bill saying, here's $2 trillion for the next couple months. And, and we were arguing over 10 years for the benefit of a healthcare system that, that right now we are seeing is definitely not sustainable. Like, it is not working for us. No. It's, um, I think we're in for a... Um... I think we're in for some inter- uh it's going to be fascinating. I think it, at the very least it'll be uh eye popping. I think the world is not going to be the same after this. Um it's 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 very humbling in some ways, you know. <laughs> like the things that I yeah. thought were important like a couple weeks ago are not important and the things that are um there's so much that's out of our hands and there's so much that we inherited. Um in some way it's it's good for the environment. Hey, there's a silver lining. Right, yeah. Um and the other, the other thing uh, that I wanted, I wanted to say that, you know, you're talking about the last couple of days of things unfolding is pay attention to to the billionaires who are sort of um, socializing, if you will, their products, right, who are making yeah. them available. And it's the arts, right? Like J.K. Rowling just said, if you want to read Harry Potter, it's going to be open for like, you know, I think she said like until June for <laughs> instructors to read to their students. And it's like I haven't heard like any tech billionaire offer like free lift rides to the hospital free yeah. to the hospital they're just like watch the, the billionaires who stay quiet like pay attention to those that don't say anything and don't offer any help like it'll tell you a lot about what this country prioritizes what the world prioritizes yeah i i read this dark article last night about um how amazon is like t- it's basically doing what the government should be doing in some instances but it's like it, it's not comforting. It's you know what I mean. Like the fact that that's a private company uh, messing with like ch- supply chains and sending groceries to people and mobilizing, um, you know, people to like get us through this crisis. And you think that, like, uh, as of right now, as of today, um, they sh- the president still hasn't like enacted that sort of the thing where. Um, like the emergency trigger or whatever that basically puts all of the companies into into action um right uh I, I feel like there's no adult in the room and we're sort of in this house that's burning down where like we're still we still believe that um capitalism will save us but it's not quite you know talk about the ultimate yeah. post-truth or the ultimate mythology the mythology that has sort of like made colonialism possible that's going to be the thing that ends I don't know who know who knows it might bring a bring bring about a post colonial state or something. I'm not that confident, but fucking anybody knows now. It's anybody's guess. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. 
I mean, right, in, in many ways, we're watching, again, I'm going to keep using the word, the socialization of, of, of a lot of, you know, uh, products or, or institutions that we, that we never imagined would ever offer free things. Um, and, you know, here we are um, during this crisis. If anything, um, you know, after the crisis sort of subdues, you know, everybody who is who's considered a radical progressive should just sort of pull up receipts from this time and be like, don't tell me we can't do this. <laughs> yeah. No. Real talk, man. Anyways, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm, my class uh, really appreciates it. I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, let's talk soon, okay? All right. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah. Dr. Nancy Quintanilla is an assistant professor of English and Modern Languages at Cal Poly Pomona. She received her PhD in English from Cornell University where she specialized in U.S. Latino and Latina literature with an interdisciplinary focus on diaspora, gender, and Central American studies. Dear friend of mine, Nancy Quintanilla, Dr. Nancy Quintanilla, gotta put respect on that name, man. Brilliant mind. We're going to finish out today with a poem on page 35 of Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem. It's called The Mustangs. In another life, my older brother was a beautiful, muscular boy who could jump from a standing position to grab a missed shot right from the rim and either hit a waiting outlet on a fast break or spring back up and drop it through the net for an easy two points. He had thin ankles long lean legs with high calf muscles balled tight like fists and split like upside down hearts runners legs jumpers legs indian legs he also had the upper body of a mojave man wide-chested broad-shouldered arms and hands that hung down near his knees like slingshots is what my mother says meaning he is a fighter he played varsity basketball for our own small town high school the needles mustangs they, were, they wore royal blue and white. A bright blue Mustang was painted on the front of the gymnasium, another inside against the brick wall, and a third in a circle on the wooden middle half court. Mustangs, I associate them with basketball. I have felt them in me, hooves rumbling like weather in my ears and sternum jolts of muscle like bolts in my throat, the way my brother must have felt those herds stampeding in his veins in those years and done his best to break them. I love my brother best in memories such as this one. I sat in the rattling bleachers of the Needles Mustangs gymnasium with my mother, my father, and all of my siblings watching my brother run out to the warm-up song Thunderstruck by ACDC. It begins with an unhinged chant like yell followed by the strike of the word thunder and then thunderstruck. The word thunder is growled 15 times followed by 19 war cry versions of thunderstruck Dressed in Mustang blue, tear-away warm-up pants and shirts, my brother and his teammates, some of whom were from our reservation, were all glide and finesse. Their high tops barely touched the floor. They circled the court twice before crossing it and moving into a layup drill while thunderstruck filled the gymnasium. gymnasium rather. They were all the things they could ever be. They were young kings and conquerors. To that song, they made layup after layup 
passed the ball like a plan planet between them, pulled it back and forth from the floor to their hands like Mars, thunderstruck, played so loudly, I couldn't hear what my mother hollered to cheer my brother. I could see only her mouth opening and closing. I was ten years old and realized right there on those bleachers, thundering like guns, that this game had the power to quiet what seemed so loud in us, that it might have the power to set the fantastic beast trampling our hearts loose. I saw it in my mother, in my brother, in those wild boys. We ran up and down the length of our lives, all of us, lit by the lights of the gym toward freedom. We Mustangs. On those nights, we were forgiven for all we ever do wrong. Right on. English 3322 lives.